Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I want to begin reading in verse 42, even though we've already kind of mainly covered 42 to 51 of chapter 24, and then I want us to read into that first section of chapter 25, because these are connected uh, sections of scripture, and I want us to see that that development in the Lord's teaching here uh, from Matthew 24 into 25. Beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour which he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to see him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. We've come to some very plain and yet difficult teaching in the Lord's message here uh, in the Olivet Discourse. He's been building layer upon layer uh, since he began to teach there on the side of that mountain. And in that layering, he's been very careful to make some proper distinctions for his disciples. One, he wanted his disciples to recognize that there is a near future coming day of the destruction of Jerusalem, a day that would be so terrifying that they would not fully be able to comprehend it until they saw it, and even when they saw it, it would not 
really be in their full understanding. He warned them. He cautioned them. He was preparing them for that coming day of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then at, toward the end of chapter 24, he begins to kind of mix his teaching on the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he begins to teach on his second coming, which is a far future event. event. And you begin to see in both of those, he's kind of uh, mixing and matching in his teaching. In the warnings that he gives about the second coming, those are also some ideas and thoughts that could be attributed to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, in the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he wanted them to be ready and be prepared and be thinking because he did not want them to run to the city. He warned them. Even in Luke's Gospels, when the Gentiles are surrounding Jerusalem, don't run to the city. He said, if you run to the city, you will be killed. As he continues to layer, he begins teaching on his far future second coming and he gives very similar warnings, but he begins to give them in even more of an eternal context. There has to be a thoughtfulness here as we've ended chapter 24, moving into chapter 25 to recognize although there's a chapter break, there's not a break in the context and in the thought. Be careful that you don't move into chapter 25 and separate it from this previous teaching of the Lord Jesus. It's often easy to do when we see chapter breaks or section breaks in something that we will begin to piece it out in some way. Even sometimes uh, with individual verses, we will do that. We'll take an individual verse and pull it out of its context and use it in some other way. It was not really its meaning. So we have to be careful here as we move from chapter 24 into chapter 25 not to divorce chapter 25 from any of the previous teaching of the Lord Jesus. This is another piece of the layering in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, moving the disciples along to see what is a near future event that will be beyond their imagination to grasp and a far future event that's even far greater than that. And he's wanting them to see there is some context and connection to those for the purpose of recognizing God's movement in all of time and space. And yet at the same time, he wants them to see that the second coming is going to be far greater in its purpose and far greater in even its division than even the destruction of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the destruction of Jerusalem, the kind of division it brought among the people of Israel? They were already dispersed. They were dispersed over all these different regions around the Mediterranean into different parts of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, the division and the dispersion would have been even greater. But so it will be when the Son of Man comes a second time. There will be a great division. And we saw it last week in the difference between the two slaves. 
and the recognition that the Lord Jesus was plainly teaching in chapter 24. There is an obedient slave who loves the work of his slave master, and he does it, and he does it willingly. And then there is another slave who says, the master won't be back for a long time, so I'll do what I want to do. And when the master returns, the imagery is the slave that was disobedient is one who will be cut into pieces and he will be assigned a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And upon that teaching, that great distinction between the believer and the unbeliever, the Lord Jesus teaches by way of parable. We've first and foremost seen in the whole of this teaching from Matthew 24, 42 to 25, 13, Jesus told his disciples to be alert. Jesus told his disciples to be alert. He told them to be alert for two reasons. Be alert for you do not know the hour. He even said, it will be an hour when you, not, when you think it's not coming. He also said, be alert that you will be ready when it comes. But as Jesus told them to be alert, now by way of parable, he teaches them to be alert. And, and there's a, a slight distinction. Some may say, well, it's not a necessary distinction. That's okay if you don't agree with me there. I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. But I think there is a slight distinction because here in this parable, he's going to teach them some things very thoughtfully and carefully. And he does it by way of this parable. So firstly, we noted last week, Jesus told them to be alert and we noted the reasons why. But number two, this morning, Jesus taught them to be alert. Jesus taught them to be alert. Under that heading, Jesus taught them to be alert, Firstly, he taught them by parable. He taught them by parable. We've studied some parables before. We've made note of several things about parables, but it's always good to be reminded of how to read the parables and to consider the parables. Firstly, a parable has only one meaning. It has only one meaning. A parable may have multiple applications, but an application is different from the meaning of the parable. This particular context of parables is important to us because um, in the past, you may have read someone or heard someone teach on one of the parables, and they begin launching off into all types of different meanings of a parable. And when they do that, they're taking away from the one main teaching and meaning of the parable itself. Probably in the past I've done something like that myself, and I wish I wouldn't have, but I'm probably guilty of that. We have to be very careful in looking at these parables to see them for their one meaning because otherwise we will misconstrue and take the parable out of context and put it in all kind of places in the Scripture that it's not necessary. And ultimately, it's not helpful. So hopefully this morning, we'll see the one meaning of this parable, and we will gather some of the applications from this parable in the context of the Olivet Discourse. The parable was not meant 
to be taken out of the Olivet Discourse and to be placed in some other place in Scripture so that it could be misconstrued for something else. When the Scripture speaks about the second coming, then the parable can be used properly. But if you're trying to use the parable to deal with something else beside the second coming, then you've missed the point of the parable. Because the parable is in the teaching at this point of the Olivet Discourse that the Lord Jesus gives about his second coming. Now that doesn't mean there can't be some applications for those disciples at the time about thinking about what Jesus has already said in his prophecy about the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem. That would be an application and not a meaning. There is application for them, for that which is near future and that which is far future. But there's only one meaning. This parable is told from the perspective of a wedding feast. Now, over the years I've done different reading on this parable, and I have to admit to you there's a lot of stuff out there that is, quite frankly, just confusing about the parable. Um, there have been literal whole books written on this one parable or the, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And sometimes those things have some helpful information in them, but other times they make the parable even more confusing. It's not trying to tease out every single aspect of the wedding feast that's important. Some people will sit and take the wedding feast and try to go back into ancient uh, Middle Eastern times and uh, what is a wedding feast and how did it come about and all those kinds of things. And I've seen a lot of that, that different writing. And quite frankly, you'll even find some writers who will say something contradictory about what another writer said about the Middle East and the wedding feast. And you're not sure who to believe. Because one writer says one thing and has a basis for why he says it. And another writer has a basis for why he gave you all this information about the wedding feast itself in the Middle East. And you're not sure what to do with all that. I think one writer gives us some real indication of something important here when he says this. Not much is known of the actual wedding ceremony in the first century Palestine. It was preceded by a, a betrothal that was much more binding than is an engagement in our modern societies. It was really, the betrothal was a first stage of marriage and it took divorce proceedings to dissolve the betrothal. At the end of the betrothal period, the marriage took place on a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin, on a Thursday if she was a widow. The bridegroom and his party made their way to the home of the bride or to some other place. There is a record of a wedding, this writer says, which he quotes from the Maccabees, of two parties. One of the bridegroom and his friends and the other of the bride and her people went out to meet each other at an unspecified place. When the two groups came together, the wedding took place. After this, there was a procession generally to the home of the bridegroom where feasting took place that might go, might go on for days. The processions often took place at night when torches made for a spectacular display. Clearly, 
This is presupposed in Jesus' parable. There's just a general picture here of a wedding feast and a wedding feast at night. We have the idea of the bridegroom coming. We have the context of the ten virgins who follow along. And yet, we're not to take some measure to find all of the details of a Middle Eastern wedding in Palestine in the first century and try to build upon the context of whatever that is because little of that information is really, really known to us today. You say, well, how do we know the meaning of the text then? I would say to you, we can know the meaning of the text very easily. And matter of fact, it tells us something wonderful about the scripture. That to understand the meaning of this parable, we do not have to have every detail of a Middle Eastern wedding in first century Palestine to get it. It tells us the Bible gives us proper meaning in all days and times, even in the illustrations it uses. The illustration here is not about trying to find some detail we don't need. The illustration is about giving us the exact information we do need. And we, when we read this illustration, the context is, is the bridegroom is coming. In the day of those weddings, they may not know exactly when the bridegroom may come. And so the context was they would be looking for this to happen. And it often would happen in a day or a time when nobody knew for sure. And then out of nowhere, they would have this wedding. There's little information to tell us of all the planning of a wedding like we do today. Some people plan for 18 months or two years to have a wedding. Not everybody does that, thankfully. But we have an idea of all of these things of what may go on in a modern context, but all we need to know is, is there was going to be a wedding. And the request was, are you prepared for the wedding? Are you prepared for its feast? The imagery plainly tells us. It plainly tells us here of two different groups that were to be prepared. It says in the text, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The virgins really aren't necessarily the issue. There's ten of them, and they're all virgins. The issue here is that five of them were foolish and five were prudent. That's the picture. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. Now, what can we say about these ten virgins, the five foolish ones and the five prudent ones? Well, under our heading, Jesus taught them to be alert. Not only did he teach them by parable, but he taught them to stay awake. He taught them to stay awake. Whatever you're going to see and say about the ten virgins, there's an overreaching idea in the whole of this teaching from verse uh, 42 of chapter 24 all the way to the end of 25, 1 through 13. And it's be alert. The word alert has multiple connotations and it's regarding the idea to awaken from sleep. Specifically in this parable it is used 
regarding the second coming of Jesus. The teaching is be alert. Be alert for what? Be alert for the second coming. The teaching is be alert how? What does that mean? It is to awaken to sleep. Verse 42 of chapter 24 tells us that Jesus told them to be alert. And here in verse 13 of chapter 25, he says, be on the alert. If we can sum up the meaning of this text, it is clearly about the second coming. And the meaning of the parable is to stir oneself up and stay awake to the truth and reality of the second coming of Jesus, the Son of God. I'll say that again. The meaning of the parable is to stir oneself up and stay awake. That's the idea of alert. Stir oneself up and stay awake to the truth and reality of the second coming of Jesus, the Son of God. Whatever applications we may get from the parable itself, we have to remember that the meaning is directly pointing to the second coming of Christ. He's telling these disciples, be alert, which means A, the connotation of stir oneself up. Don't be sleeping. Be prepared. If you need oil for the lamp, make sure you have enough. The problem with the foolish virgins is that they weren't ready. They weren't alert. They weren't thinking ahead. They weren't prepared. They were just going on about their day and thinking to themselves, well, it's going to happen at some point. The bridegroom will come at some point. We know there was a wedding and now we've got a feast. And so at some point, since there was a wedding and we know there's a feast, at some point the bridegroom will come and when it comes we'll just kind of get there and do our thing. And yet the problem is they weren't really prepared. They didn't have the oil for the nighttime to go to the feast They had to go back to the cellars to get the oil. And while they got the oil, the bridegroom finally came and went into the feast and the doors to the feast were shut. The Lord Jesus is making sure the disciples... Do not live aimless lives. The Lord Jesus is making sure the disciples do not live aimless lives. Sadly, in some circles of Christianity, when people think about the second coming and not knowing the day or the hour, some people think that gives us reason as Christians just to let go and let God and we'll sit back and see what happens and we don't really have anything we're aiming at. We'll just wait on him to get here. Well, according to the text, I think from the meaning of the text, that's inappropriate. That would be an inappropriate application from this parable, is to live an aimless life, an aimless life. Well, that brings us to a question. Why stay awake? Why stay awake? Well, Jesus has already said, and through the parable, he's teaching it once again. We stay awake because the second coming of Jesus is a certainty. 
Why do you need to be awake and alert? Why do you need to stir yourself to the second coming of Christ? Because it's a certainty. Um, sometimes we, we don't think about that in the way that, that we should. The certainty of the second coming is, is meant for our preparation. See, this was the problem earlier with the slave, right? The slave said, the evil slave said, Ah, the Lord Jesus, or the master will come, but it'll be a long time. Now, what ended up, ended up happening with the evil slave? Not only was he not preparing himself for the master's coming, but because of his idle heart, he turned that idle heart into evil, and he began to beat the slaves. That's the imagery that we're given from Jesus' teaching. That he turned his idleness into actual downgrade and he went toward that which was evil. Well, we have to be reminded whether the Lord Jesus' coming is still a long way away or not. It is a certainty. And the scripture teaches us the accountability of our actions. True enough, the judgment will place us under that work of Christ. True enough, God will have us placed in the righteousness of His Son Christ and our sin has been put onto Him on the cross. Remember once again, the text here is giving us only two options, the believer or the unbeliever. And the believer is one who is not just going to say, I believe, but I'll go do what I want to. The believer is going to be one who says, I believe, therefore, because of all of the gratitude I have for what God has done for me through his son, I want to willingly obey his commands and walk with him. Even if he doesn't come back by the end of my life on this earth, I want to be faithful to him. Our works do not produce our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, that righteousness declares us right and we have been made new in Christ and therefore we want to do good works. The second coming of Jesus is a certainty and that needs to be put in our minds every single day. You know why? Jesus reminds us in the parable. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, verse 5, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Let's admit it. Let's just be honest and admit it. We live our day-to-day -day lives. We go on with our day-to-day -day lives. And there's just times the second coming of the Lord Jesus is not in the forefront of our brains, and we get drowsy. And we just kind of go through the motions of whatever that day is. Not thinking about the certainty of the second coming of Christ. We just have to admit that. And here the Lord Jesus warns his disciples. And in essence is warning any believer, don't be drowsy. Don't be falling asleep. Stir yourself up to be awakened and alert Specifically, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus.
because it's a certainty. As we will, we won't get to it this week, but in coming weeks we'll deal further with the idea of preparation. Um, we'll develop some of it today. But if you're going to think about preparation, you can't be prepared for an event unless you're an awake and alert to the event. Whatever somebody wants to say about being prepared and thoughtful about something that's upcoming, the only way to really be alert to whatever is upcoming or be prepared for whatever is upcoming is to be alert to it, right? To be awakened to it. To be thinking about it. For it to be a present reality even though it's still far future. I think sometimes we forget to think of the second coming of Christ as the reality that it really is. It seems so far future to us that it's almost like, I know it's coming, but I'll probably die before it happens, and then I'll just let other people deal with that, and then God will raise me up, and, and my body will be joined back to my soul, and we'll get it all worked out. I'm just not going to see all that. But that sounds like a person who doesn't really, 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 really live their life believing that their Lord and Savior is going to return at any day, and it could be a day that we don't even think it would be. If you're going to be prepared for something, you have to be awake and alert to it. You have to be awake and alert to it. Well, why would we want to be alert? Not only the certainty of it, but being alert is the only way to think about preparation for something. If you have a major event in your life and you know it's upcoming, how do you deal with that major event if you were to deal with it properly? You think through proper preparation, don't you? If some major event is upcoming in your life, if you're dealing with it properly, you don't go, I don't want to think about that. I think I'll just turn my back to it and hope it goes away. And then when I show up, maybe somebody else will have prepared for it. Young people, is that the way you would properly prepare for a test? You know six months in advance you have a paper to turn in or you have a test to take in four months, and what you say is, is, I know it's on the syllabus. I know other students who have been in the class, and, and they said that this test was hard. Um, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to think that, you know, maybe it won't happen. Or during the middle of the semester, you're going to get caught up in other things, and you're going to kind of turn your attention to other things and not remember that. And then what are you going to do? Hope you show up and the test is not as hard as everybody said it was going to be? It's probably not a good way to prepare, is it? Well, if we have practical things in our lives, we wouldn't prepare for that way. And we would want to be awake and alert to those things and thinking about them. And the Lord Jesus plainly in the context of his second coming tells us to be alert and awake. Why wouldn't we want to be thinking about his second coming more often? Why wouldn't that be a present state of mind 
that helps us live a daily present life, why wouldn't we want that? Especially since the Lord Jesus himself taught it. And he taught it in a way that we should be alert to it. We should be awakened to it. And thirdly and lastly under this heading this morning of why, why stay awake. When Jesus comes, those who are unprepared will not be allowed in the feast. Now I want you to understand what the preparation is here. The meaning of the text is not meaning that you're preparing yourself and your preparation is your works to be able to get into the kingdom. No. No, it's making a distinct, a distinct, clear-cut value or line drawn. You see, those who were believing the t- out of the ten virgins, the five virgins that were prepared were the ones believing because they had the oil that they could have kept walking through the night and staying through the night with their lamp ready for the bridegroom to come to the feast. That when he showed up, they could walk right in with the bridegroom. In the parable, those are genuine believers. Those who were foolish. And notice Jesus' word of the uh, use of the word foolish. From Old Testament and New Testament context, this idea of foolish, the foolish one, is often the scoffer. The foolish one is often the one who goes against God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I think Jesus is making a clear distinction. The foolish virgins are the ones, it's not just that they're not prepared with the oil, but their heart was not prepared because they were not thinking of the certainty of the second coming. just by way of observation I want to leave you with a few thoughts this morning the believer needs to continually stir his mind with the truth of the second coming of Jesus the believer needs to continually stir his or her mind with the truth of the second coming of Jesus why would I say that well I have several thoughts here this truth of the second coming of Jesus It strengthens our desire for sanctification. This is an understanding. This is an application. We're not talking about the meaning of the text here. We're talking about an application of the text. We can see the, the division between the prudent and the foolish. Well, if you think about the prudent version in this context... The sense of that prudent version is one who is desiring to continue to grow in truth. They're always being prepared, being ready, being thinking about these truths. If we were to apply this parable to our hearts, 
Don't we all need strengthening in our sanctification? And what better way to be strengthened in our ongoing sanctifying, the sanctifying work of the gospel in our lives than to be thinking that, you know what? I believe the Bible to be true in every word that it says, and the Bible plainly says, whether in Matthew 24 and 25 or whether it's in Thessalonians or in Revelation, wherever it is, in Corinthians, we could go through all these different places. Wherever it is, the Bible plainly teaches the Lord Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to judge with all authority of the Father. That ought to be a truth that strengthens our desire for sanctification, to grow in the Lord, not just to be, yes, thankful for what he's done, but to be thankful and for that gratitude to be worked out in a way that I would desire to grow in him, understanding his truth, grow in the, the knowledge of his word, that I would live a life before men and women and children that would be glorifying unto God in whatever sphere of life I'm in. The second coming heightens, number two, the second coming heightens our sense of God's purpose and plan. You know, the, one of the reasons that we tend to fall asleep a little bit, we get drowsy about the things going on, is because we lose sight of the second coming and realizing there's a whole purpose and plan of God that's being worked out. And until that is fully worked out, we won't see Christ. But it's guaranteed he's coming. And when he does come, we will know God, he's worked out his plan. It's another reason we're reading the Psalms and we're not to be fearful of the evildoer. And we're not to look around and go, why does the evildoer get away with that? Well, Scripture teaches us that the evildoer will not always get away with those things. That's why we shouldn't follow them. They're going to go away like the grass. They're going to be done with. But for all those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from the debt and guilt of their sin, those are also people who believe in his second coming, and they believe that God has a purpose and plan that's being worked out, even though I may see what I think are good things happening to people who are scoffers and fools. The scoffer and the fool on this earth may be allowed to have children and love those children and enjoy those children. The scoffer and the fool may be allowed to have some of the good things of this earth and enjoy those things, and they'll have the rain that falls on their crops. And yet on the day of the second coming, they will have not been those who are prepared. They're not prudent. They're fools. They will be those who are off doing something else. And when they come, the door to the wedding feast is shut. They will be those like in the days of Noah, going about their life doing their things. And when the flood came and the water was up to their knees and their waist and their chest and they were floating and paddling, they were unprepared. You see, Jesus has already used that illustration, right? The second coming needs to heighten our sense of God's purpose and plan. Thirdly, this helps to guard against 
unholy wrath and anger toward this present age and its followers. This helps to guard against unholy wrath and anger toward this present age and its followers. I'm making a distinction. There can be genuine godly wrath towards things. Um, we can have genuine wrath towards something like abortion. It is an awful, awful, awful sin committed in this world. And yet even in what might be a genuine wrath toward abortion, someone might carry out that wrath in an ungodly way. So we have to be careful because not all our wrath is holy wrath. And probably very rarely is our anger and wrath holy. And there are times it might be a mixture of the two. But the second coming helps me to guard against an unholy wrath and anger toward this present age and its followers. Sometimes our wrath can go to places that, as we learned in Bible study today, our wrath and anger toward this present age might make us grumblers. We might become discontent. I'm so angry at this world. I'm so angry at these people. What are they doing? That I begin to lose my contentment in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes it's not just about discontentment or grumbling. Sometimes our unholy wrath and anger affects our own lives and our relationships with those around us. We get so angry at some other people or the world around us, we're not remembering the great truth of the second coming and the purpose and plan of God in such a way that we begin to take out our anger on those around us, even sometimes our own family members. You, you see here, there's so much teaching in the Bible about God handling his own wrath, God bringing forward his own wrath. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, from Old Testament to New. And the second coming is a place that pushes us towards this reality of trusting so much in the Lord our God that we don't have this unholy wrath, unholy anger that even drives us from the inside and tightens everything on the inside of us to the point that even the people around us, we're ready to come out after them with our mouth like this. Certainly it it doesn't give us the right to do nothing because the parable tells us there's proper preparation. But the parable also applies to us the fact that it doesn't give us the right to act like we're God and we're going to pour out our wrath. This is the point of forgiveness. Our sins have been forgiven. The wrath of God was poured out onto his son. We deserved it. We deserved that wrath. When our sins are forgiven, that means that our sins are paid for in that debt. And the way that they're paid for is that that sin was poured out. The wrath of God was poured out onto the Son. If I have a life 
thinking very presently and purposefully about the second coming, I will remember well that God's vengeance is a certain matter and he will pour it out. I will also remember that his vengeance is even greater than mine. That there is absolutely nothing I can do to a person that is greater than the vengeance of God being poured out on them. The second coming also helps to develop a sense of godly pity for those who do not believe. And I, I, don't, I don't mean we have to patronize people. Oh, you pitiful unbeliever. Oh, I'm so saddened by your decisions. And I will speak to you this way in every moment and let you know that you are not a believer in the Lord. Don't do that, people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a genuine pity of the heart that you can look at certain situations and certain people and realize, I need to pray for that person because they just do not know the Lord Jesus. I need to pray for them that God would change their soul. If God might give me opportunity to speak to them, that I would have wisdom in how I live before them and I would have wisdom to think about the timing of speaking to them. There is such a thing as good timing. Some people think that you have to smash somebody in the face every time you see them. I don't think that's gospel-oriented. It's about developing a sense of godly pity. Not because we ourselves are greater, but because we ourselves have been those who have been redeemed. And we realize the redemption came at a great price. Also, this encourages us to gospel work in our households. If I'm thinking about the second coming, I'm thinking about my children. I'm thinking about my family members. I'm thinking about gospel work in my own household. I think that's one of the toughest things about having family members that don't know the Lord is when do I say something and how do I say it? Because I have tried before, but it didn't go well. So, Lord, will you give me grace? Will you give me wisdom? Our children, our nephews and nieces, our grandchildren, There's the gospel work of the mom in the home, the dad in the home. If I'm thinking about the second coming, these things become more prevalent in my mind, don't they? Because I'm looking at people around me going, boy, this is important because the bridegroom could come at any moment for the feast. And I completely believe in the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election and salvation and the particular atonement. You, know, you all know that have been here for years. I teach all those things. And teach them plainly. And they're right in the scripture. But we've always said, true, the sovereignty of God, even in salvation, and especially in it. And, not either or, and man is responsible. Both of those things are true at the same time. And that even goes to us. Lastly, the second coming encourages us to gospel prayer. 
gospel prayer for those around us, gospel prayer for strength to live in this present age. And in many ways, I really can't complain personally. I have so much. The Lord's been so gracious. The Lord's blessed me with a church that has allowed me to be here for over 20 years. You guys know I, I have pastor friends that hadn't stayed in the same church for more than three years, their whole ministries. I have pastor friends that are no longer in the ministry at all. Because the churches they serve just beat them up, tore them down. Harassed them and went after them. I saw some of that in an earlier church. But I have been blessed. That's a great blessing. My wife, my kids. All the different things. You, you have blessings like that too, right? When you pray, remember Thanksgiving. Let that be your strength for this present age. Because the present age sometimes is really hard, isn't it? Don't forget the blessings of the Lord. Give thanks to him. Give thanks to him that you know he's coming again. That's what prayer is. Communing with our God in adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. And if he's truly coming again, we've been commanded to pray. Is that not a way we would be prepared for his second coming as being a people of gospel prayer? In our homes, in our lives, in our cars with our eyes open, right? Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us and your mercy to us. Lord, will you help us to be thoughtful people, to be people with the present mindset of the second coming of your son, the Lord Jesus? that we would build appropriate, appropriate and proper prudence in our lives according to your word. Our lives would be gospel-oriented and thoughtful. Lord Jesus, we praise you that while you were on this earth, you taught that you will be coming again. That was not only prophecy, but it was promise. And as the Son of God, you cannot lie. So we praise you that you are coming again. Help us to remember that in our daily lives. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's turn together our song.